0: Hello, I'm Rob, and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 7th of June 2023.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. Org forward slash talking dash news as a podcast via services such as apple or spotify or as a free cd simply contact beacon center on 01902 880
0: 111 we hope you enjoy this week's edition reading this week we have myself rob christine angela liz sportsman ian pete helen Mina, Simon, and of course not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition we have, local news of the black country, an update from Beacon. The quiz with Mina, information about fit over filter glasses. The latest news from West Bromwich Albion and Wolves, a did you know section of Flashback Roger, the weather for the week ahead. And rounding us off, an article about cataracts. Local news to start though, with Liz, Christine, Ian, but first we have Angela.
2: A free drop-in event to find out more about support and services available for adults living with a disability in Dudley is taking place at Queen's Cross Network, Wellington Road, Dudley on Thursday, June the 15th from 2 to 7pm. People will be able to find information on supported living options, vision and hearing support, falls prevention, caring for a loved one or friend and self-management programmes for people with long-term conditions. Refreshments will be available and there will be advice on home adaptations to help people live safely and securely, plus information on dementia services and support for older people to help keep them safe. People will also be able to tour the Community Hub at Queen's Cross Network and find out about activities on offer. Councillor Natalie Neal, Dudley Council's Cabinet Member for Adult Social Care, said we want to support people living with disabilities through the extensive range of services we offer to help them live a happy, safe and full life. We also see the value of supporting family members and carers too. This event is an opportunity for people to get a thorough overview of how we can help and make contact with the right services. There is no need to confirm attendance in advance. For more information, call 01384 813 460.
3: I was often told things were not possible or too difficult for me to do. Carl Denning believes he is the first person with sight loss to be elected as a councillor for Dudley. The proud guide dog owner was elected to serve as the castle and priory ward at the local elections earlier this month, after 12 years of campaigning for his local community. Now the councillor is determined to use his role to push disability rights to the forefront in his area. Speaking of overcoming the odds, Councillor Denning said, My late mother encouraged me to stand. She often said, Change in government only comes from within. I've campaigned for over 12 years for positive change in my community. Since being elected, the officers are listening. I can arrange meetings within days. Before I was elected, it took months. As a disabled person and a very proud guide dog owner, I was often told things were not possible or too difficult for me to do. I will now be sitting on the Taxi Licensing Committee and Highways Committee in the coming year and expect some difficult conversations. I will be pushing disability rights forward. A spokesperson for the Guide Dogs charity added, Over the years, Carl has been such a driving force with Guide Dogs and has supported our fundraising. Congratulations to Cole. We would like to wish him all the best in his role as counsellor and we look forward to keeping up with his progress.
1: A Bridge North man had his sight saved by his optician after he was diagnosed with ocular cancer following a routine appointment. Stuart Greaves had no idea when he went for his routine eye test that it would result in him being referred to hospital and diagnosed with ocular cancer. Teresa Hughes, experienced optometrist and store director at Specsavers Bridge North, was carrying out the test when she spotted something that she wasn't expecting to see, an abnormal dark patch at the back of the eye. Typically, the retina is orange-red in colour, but just off to the side I could see a very dark grey area, Teresa said. In order to take a closer look at what was going on, I asked Stuart to come back the next day so I could dilate his pupils. And I also suggested we do an optical coherence tomography scan, OCT. The scan allowed us to get a better view of the back of Stuart's eye to see things in more detail. The OCT scan confirmed that all was not right with Stuart's eye, which meant a referral to New Cross Hospital in Wolverhampton. Stewart said, When Teresa returned after the OCT scan and asked about my general health, I knew something was wrong. I was so surprised because I only went to Specsavers for a routine eye test. I had no symptoms to indicate that there might be a problem, but Teresa told me she had seen something that needed to be checked out in more detail. I went to my referral appointment at New Cross Hospital a few weeks after my sight test. The specialist at the hospital took more images of the back of my eye and diagnosed me with early stage ocular choroid melanoma in my left eye. I was so shocked and scared it seemed to come completely out of the blue. I was then referred to the Royal University Liverpool Hospital, which is a world-renowned treatment centre for this type of cancer.
4: At the hospital, Stewart had both magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, and computed tomography, CT scans, to ensure the cancer was localised to his eye, which it was, before a treatment plan was agreed. The doctor at the hospital told me that this cancer is pretty rare. There's less than 700 cases per year in the UK, Stewart added. They also mentioned that they could do a biopsy to determine the type of ocular melanoma, but there was a small chance that this could cause the cancer to seed and spread elsewhere in my body, and that was a risk I didn't want to take. We moved forward with my treatment plan which included surgery to have four metal targets attached to the back of my eye so that I could then have proton beam therapy. The surgery was done at St Paul's Eye Unit in Liverpool and then I was referred to Clatterbridge Cancer Centre for the treatment. My proton beam therapy meant I went to the cancer centre for five consecutive days. It was done pretty quickly, in five to ten minutes per day. Following his treatment, Stewart went back to New Cross for a follow-up appointment. He was told that the cancer was contained to his eye and that the proton beam therapy had worked, although the cancer will not disappear completely. Stewart now has checkups every 6 months, and as this cancer can spread to the liver, he has checks for that too. I truly can't thank Teresa at Specsavers enough for catching this early, he said. She was so calm and empathetic when she saw my scan results. She spoke to me in a way that made me feel at ease. Teresa certainly saved my eyesight and quite possibly my life. I'm feeling positive with my treatment plan going forward and I'd recommend an OCT scan to anyone. If you have any concerns or queries regarding your eye health, please don't hesitate to contact your GP local optometrist or hospital eye service. You can also speak with Beacon's team of sight loss advisors on 01902 880111.
0: Up next, we hear from Helen, who of course has for us the Beacon update.
5: Hi everyone, it's Helen from the Beacon, back with your weekly update of everything that's been going on here at the charity. And this week, I'm starting with a very big thank you to the team behind the JW Hunk Cup final. It's a charity football competition that's been raising money for the Beacon Centre for 97 years. Isn't that incredible? And this week was the final of the 2022-23 season. It took place at Molyneux and Litchfield City came out victorious. They took on Tiverdale FC and won 1-0. It was a great night and we are so grateful for the amazing support from everyone involved in the Cup. It's just incredible, really. Next this week, 184 volunteers, 20,000 hours volunteering each year, six volunteers who complete more than one role, and 18 areas across our charity where people volunteer. As Volunteer Week, which runs between June the 1st and 7th, gets underway, we're saying a big thank you to all our incredible volunteers who donate so much of their time to Beacon each year to make a difference to our members. We'll be sharing some of their stories on social media throughout the week. And I'll give you another update next week. Last this week, we wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported our Color We are delighted to tell you that our fantastic fundraisers have raised more than £3,500 to help people live well with sight loss. We so appreciate the support of everyone involved in the event. If you fancy coming along to another Beacon fundraiser, you can save the date for our Santa run. It'll be on Sunday, December the 3rd. Make sure you don't miss out on an early bear discount code coming out next month by signing up for our latest updates. Just email support us at beaconvision.org or you can always give us a call as well on 01902 880111. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye bye.
0: Cheers that update, Helen. Up now, we're our next block of local news. And starting this one off, we first hear Christine.
5: A troubled
1: Black Country Metro extension will end one stop early unless a funding shortfall is met. The 6.8-mile route has already been split into two phases after costs ballooned to more than £550 million due to inflation and supply chain issues. Now, construction of the second phase from Dudley Town Centre to Briley Hill has been carved up into smaller chunks due to a major funding shortfall. After a meeting this week, the West Midlands Combined Authority – WMCA is set to sign off on a funding package that will see work start on a rejigged second phase dogged by financial issues. A report to the Board says Phase 2A will run from Dudley to Waterfront. Phase 2B will then continue on to an interim terminus at Merry Hill Shopping Centre, providing Dudley Council agrees to chip in funding. The report goes on, Phase 2C from Merry Hill to Brierly Hill currently remains unfunded and options to provide public transport connections will continue to be evaluated and assessed. It adds, connectivity from this interim terminus to connect onwards to Brierly Hill High Street can be provided through a combination of pedestrian, cycle and demand-responsive bus solutions. West Midlands Mayor Andy Street, who chairs the WMCA, said It wasn't an easy decision to phase construction last year, but against a backdrop of rising energy, borrowing and supply costs, we really had little choice. The reason this line is so important and why our commitment has remained steadfast is that it will provide people in Dudley with a modern transport system that better connects them to opportunities across the West Midlands. The sooner we get it built, the sooner people can reap those benefits. The WMCA said additional costs for the line will be covered by dipping into a £1.05 billion transport fund it secured from the government. The line is also being part-funded by £60 million from the Department for Leveling Up, providing the business case is backed by ministers. The projected total cost
4: of the line has not been made public. The leader of Dudley Council today said the future of the borough was bright and regeneration, regeneration, regeneration would be his priority for the next 12 months. Councillor Patrick Harley released a video outlining the main aims of his administration for 2023-24 after the Conservatives retained their majority at the recent local elections. The leader said investors and developers were queuing up to do business in Dudley and promised residents diggers would hit the ground over the next 12 months and change the skyline in the borough. Councillor Harley also pledged to deliver a library service fit for the 21st century after a recent protest at planned cuts and vowed to continue investing to update old and tired park and play equipment. He said senior councillors would be working with officers and local MPs around the clock to lobby government for funding to improve town centres and pledged continued investment in road maintenance and street cleansing.
2: The black country attracted a record 33 million visitors in 2022 and saw the biggest boost to its visitor economy in the whole West Midlands. The region saw an impressive 27% rise in its visitor economy, from $1.2 billion in 2019 to $1.5 billion in 2022, according to figures revealed by the West Midlands Growth Company and Global Tourism Solutions. Swathes of tourists flocked here thanks to events including the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. Visitor numbers have been so successful, the West Midlands Growth Company says The region is 12 months ahead of schedule for its post-COVID recovery. The region's Economic Development Agency says the West Midlands visitor economy is now worth a record £14.1 billion after welcoming 141.2 million visitors last year. Dudley alone saw nearly 9.5 million tourists, 9.39 million, up from 9 million in 2019. These visitor figures generated an economic value for the borough of £401 million, up 27% on 2019 figures. Councillor Patrick Harley, the leader of Dudley Council, said 2022 was a bumper year for the West Midlands. The Commonwealth Games brought people to the region in record numbers and showed the world what it has to offer. In Dudley, we were so proud to welcome international cycling athletes to our streets as part of the Games, and we look forward to welcoming the return of elite cyclists to Dudley this summer in the Dudley Grand Prix Circuit Race event. Councillor Harley added, Dudley Borough is a great destination for visitors with our series of world-class attractions, such as the Black Country Living Museum, Dudley Zoo and Castle, Dudley Canal Trust and the Red House Glass Cone. Wolverhampton Council's Cabinet Member for Visitors in the City, Councillor Bipinda Gakal, added, The recent reopening of the halls Wolverhampton kicks off a whole host of major city centre events which use our new public spaces, boost footfall and offer a real variety of things for visitors to see and do, including artisan markets, crazy races and Wolverhampton pride.
3: The Royal Air Force RAF Museum in Cosford is among the UK's best free days out according to a new survey. The free museum is dedicated to the history of aviation and contains a huge collection of engines, aircraft and missiles. Many of the aircraft are incredibly rare, housing the last remaining Bolton-Paul Defiant in the world and one of only two surviving Vickers Wellingtons. The attraction hosts dozens of events each year, including the extremely popular RAF Cosford Air Show in June. St Fagan's National Museum of History, the National Railway Museum and Durham Cathedral were also amongst the UK's best free days, according to the survey. The top-rated free attraction is Cardiff St Fagan's National Museum of History, which achieved a customer score of 94% in a survey of almost 7,000 people by consumer group Which The open-air museum offers a fascinating glimpse into history and features 40 reconstructed buildings, including a working forge, a school, chapel and a workman's institute, while practical exhibits involve demonstrations of blacksmithing, pottery and weaving. The National Railway Museum in York, which displays more than a 100 locomotives, including the Mallard, a working replica of George Stevenson's rocket, and the only Shinkansen bullet train outside of Japan, tied with the Royal Air Force Museum in Cosford, with a score of 91%. The watchdog has also asked 3,000 people to rank their favourite historic attractions, rating them on nine criteria, including accessibility, the quality of food and drink available, and lack of crowds. Durham Cathedral, once described by Bill Bryson as the best cathedral on planet Earth, topped the ranking with a score of 86%. St David's Cathedral was also rated highly on 80 percent followed by chichester with a score of 77 percent the houses of parliament followed on 76 percent with any uk resident able to avoid paying around 25 pounds ahead by contacting their mp or a member of the house of lords to request a free 75 minute guided tour which travel editor Rory Boland said, as the cost of living crisis continues to be a strain on household budgets, finding cheap or free days out has never been more important. Fortunately, the UK has a number of fantastic museums, galleries and other attractions which offer free entry and hours of fun. From the world's largest railway museum to the Houses of Parliament, which is rankings of the UK's best free days out has plenty to inspire you as the summer holidays approach.
0: Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition. And they're brought to us by Mina.
6: Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. How many barbecues were thought to have been held during the Platinum
7: Jubilee? Question
6: 2. The word barbecue is attributed to which Caribbean tribe? Question 3. What poisonous gas given off by barbecues makes them harmful and dangerous to use indoors? Question 4. Which garden activity has the barbecue elbowed out of top
7: spot? Question 5. What temperature can a barbecue reach? And finally, question 6. In what year was the first modern barbecue invented? I will be back with you
6: later in the show with the answers, but for now, best of luck.
0: Cheers those questions, Mina. I'll get my mind working on those. Up now, however, it's another block of local news. The quick actions and bravery of a postman who saved a man's
4: life have been highlighted in an emotional video. Dan Howells was reunited with Daryl and Ann Taylor for a video campaign around CPR and how Mr Howells managed to help save the life of Mr Taylor after he collapsed outside a Stourbridge sorting office on November the 23rd. Mr Howells administered CPR for around 15 minutes to 78-year-old Mr Taylor who had hit his head during the fall and stopped breathing. Following Mr Taylor's wife Ann raising the alarm. West Midlands Ambulance Service also provided instructions over the phone, and when a paramedic team arrived and immediately took over resuscitation efforts, the work by Mr Howells helped Mr Taylor to regain consciousness and be relayed to Russell's Hall Hospital for further treatment. In the video, Mr Taylor said he remembered going to the post office on a Wednesday afternoon with his wife, then waking up in hospital on the Thursday evening. He said we'd been out, and there was a letter saying there was a parcel, and I'd been waiting for this parcel, so I'd gone down. I remember going in there and it was on the Wednesday and the next thing I remember is Thursday night in the hospital. Mr Howells said he had just started his shift that day and had met Mr Taylor, who he said had misunderstood where the service delivery point was and had directed him towards it before seeing Mrs Taylor run through a few minutes later to say that her husband had collapsed. He said when I found him he was on the floor unconscious and with blood coming from his head. I didn't even think to be honest, I just reacted to it and the first thing I did, obviously, was phone the emergency services and speak to an operator. They explained to me that Daryl had gone into cardiac arrest, so basically start CPR straight away. And the CPR went on for 15 minutes, two compressions a second for 15 minutes, which is a long time. Both Mr. and Mrs. Taylor said they couldn't believe how Mr. Howells had managed to keep going for that long doing CPR, with Mr. Howells saying he was quite a stubborn person and was not going to give up until the ambulance service had turned up. Mrs. Taylor also said Mr. Howells was a hero, saying, I was so grateful as my husband survived and he deserves a medal and deserves all the recognition we can give him. He really does. Mr Taylor who has since made a full recovery said what can I say to him he's a hero and he saved my life what more can you say Armed
2: forces veterans in Dudley are being invited to have badges formally presented to them by the mayor at a special ceremony The Armed Forces Day event is to take place on Sunday the 25th of June at Himley Hall and Park Former and current personnel who attend are eligible for the presentation of HM Armed Forces Veterans' Badges. They will need to have already applied for and received the badges prior to the event, the Council says. Eligible parties are being urged to make applications through the Veterans UK Helpline before contacting Dudley Council to be included in the ceremony. The free-to-attend event, set to run between 11am and 5pm, will also include aerobatic displays, dance sessions, a craft fair and vintage fairground rides. Andrea Goddard, Mayor of Dudley, said the day was an opportunity to honour and reflect on the efforts of men and women who have served. Our Armed Forces Day gives us the opportunity to do just that, as well as find out more about the work of the services and enjoy some nostalgic entertainment, she added. It will be a privilege to attend as Mayor this year, and I look forward to presenting badges and medals to personnel. The Veterans UK helpline can be accessed on O eight O eight one nine one four two one eight.
3: A beloved family dog has been reunited with her owners after being dumped in an ambulance more than 50 miles away from home. Jazz, a black cocker spaniel, disappeared from her family home in Paris last year without a trace. Her devastated owner, Emma Darling, was determined to find Jazz and quickly alerted Petlog, who Jazz's microchip is recorded with, as well as their local vets. She also put up posters, shared on social media, and looked every day for Jazz for months, but heard nothing. Then, out of the blue, eight months later, a vet's practice in Wolverhampton, more than 50 miles away from Emma's home in Paris, called Emma. A Cocker Spaniel had been handed in to them by an ambulance worker, who had discovered a dog in the back of the ambulance, while the crew were out on shift, tending to a patient. The dog was found wet and covered in algae, with the paramedics believing that she had been dumped in a nearby canal. The vets scanned her microchip, which confirmed it was Jazz, and was registered with Emma's up-to-date contact details. Jazz has finally been reunited with Emma and her family, thanks to the beloved dog being microchipped. This month marks National Microchipping Month, organised by Petlog, the UK's largest lost and found pet database, to encourage owners to microchip their pets and ensure their details are up to date and keep more of the UK's much-loved pets safe. Bill Lambert, spokesperson for Petlog, which is run by the Kennel Club, said, While Jazz and Emma's story had a happy ending, so many others end terribly with devastating repercussions. No one ever expects it to happen but during this year's National Microchipping Month we are urging all owners to microchip their pets and check that their details are completely up to date so that they have the very best chance of being reunited with their four-legged family member.
1: Residents of the region can meet with their local councillors and discuss ideas to improve the areas where they live when the Your Home, Your Forum meetings return later this month. Dudley Council will host five forums covering all wards in the borough as follows. Kicking off the next round will be the Dudley North Forum, which will be held on Thursday, June 8th at St Chad's Church Hall, Oak Street, Cosley. The Briley Hill and Hale Owen Forums will both take place on Monday, June 19th and will be held at St James's Methodist Church, Chapel Street, Pensnet and Cradley Community Centre, Collie Lane, respectively. The Starbridge Forum is scheduled to be held on Thursday, June 22nd at Withymore Primary School, Gayfield Avenue, Briley Hill whilst the Dudley Forum, which will also be held on Thursday, June 22nd, will be at Dudley Wood Neighbourhood Learning Centre and Library Link off Pavilion Gardens, Dudleywood Road, Dudley. The forums, which will run from 6.30pm to 8.30pm, will be informal, giving residents a chance to have their say and discuss what is good about their area and what can be improved. Councillors and police will also be there for residents to talk to. Anyone attending the forums will also be able to find out about funding available to groups and organisations. Councillor Ian Bevan, Dudley's cabinet member responsible for Your Home, Your Forums, said this is the first opportunity residents will have had to meet with all of the newly elected members following the recent election. The forums also provide an informal setting for people to get together and talk about what can be done to make things better in the areas they live and to celebrate the things that are already going well so we can share best practice in other corners of the borough. We'd love to see as many people from our communities as possible, representing all ages and backgrounds. Anyone wishing to attend should contact the Dudley Council Healthy Communities team on. 0300 555 2345
0: More local news to follow, but now Pete's got an idea which may help with the visual discomfort some people get from bright lights and glare. If you need help with sight loss then filter glasses might
8: help you. Filter glasses are a range of glasses specially for sight loss designed to protect your eyes from harmful UV rays and reduce glare and bright light, and also improve contrast as well. They make things clearer to see and your eyes more comfortable. They can either be worn on their own, or you can wear them over your existing prescription glasses. Wearing a sun hat or a baseball cap or a sun visor can also help too. So if you'd like to try the range of cocoon filter glasses and find the right lens and frame to make life a bit more comfortable for you, then call Beacon Sight Loss Advisors for an appointment. You can call on 01902 880 111 and ask for a sight loss advisor.
0: Coming up next on this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News, we have another block of local news.
3: Ah, fish and chips and mushy peas... There is nothing more British than fish and chips, freshly cooked, piping hot fish and chips, smothered in salt and soused with vinegar, wrapped in newspaper and eaten out of doors. On a cold and wintry day, the mighty fish and chips and the black country magic of orange chips simply cannot be beaten. It may have slipped by, but last Friday was National Fish and Chip Day, a day marked to celebrate those who helped produce the nation's favourite takeaway. The day, held every June 2nd, celebrates everyone involved in creating the iconic British dish, from fish and chip shops, pub chains, restaurants, retailers, to the fishermen and farmers who provide the sustainable and natural ingredients. UK fisheries said that British consumers eat approximately 382 million meals from fish and chip shops every year, including 167 million portions of fish and chips, the traditional favourite, including dozens across the region. But one thing that makes the chip shops of the Black Country stand out is the popularity of orange chips, and many shops claiming to have the best orange chips around. Among them are the major fish restaurant in Church Street, Bilston, Sophie's Place in Castle Street, Dudley, and the Black Country Chippy in Great Bridge, Tipton. The Major Fish restaurant, otherwise known as Major's Chippy, has been serving the people of Bilston and the wider area since 1975, and manager Mandy Kari said people came from far afield to buy their chips from Major's. She said, They absolutely love them, and I know people who have come from miles around, even different countries, to buy our chips. I think our chips are special because of the ingredients we use and the way they are cooked, So it all adds up and makes it a bit different. And there is a secret family recipe we use, but I'm not allowed to tell you. I think people love orange chips because of the taste, as they are more filling than normal chips due to the batter, which makes the difference. And I do think it's definitely something unique to the black country.
1: In Dudley, Sophie's Place is a fish shop adored by many people across the town, with Sophie and her family providing quality orange chips and seeing long queues at lunchtime from people looking for a treat. The shop has been open since 1987 and has even survived a bus crashing into it in 2021 to continue providing orange chips, something co-owner Kiki Minus was very proud of. He said, We've been here for 37 years and word gets around about our chips, which I think are the best orange chips out there, and the quality of them seems to bear out because people come at all hours to buy them. Flattered chips are something unique to this area and you can't get them everywhere so that's why I think people love them. The shop was popular before the crash and just as popular after it and it's great to be able to sell something so unique to the region as people in the black country love orange chips. The origin of where the orange chip came from has been debated across the region with many shops claiming to have been the first to make orange chips. At Black Country Chippy in Great Bridge, which has been operating in the town since 1959, owner Dean Gilbert says they created the orange chip first through his grandfather, Albert, who he believes was the first to produce the orange chips. He said, We started across the road in 1959 as Queen's Fish Bar, and I remember him saying he was the first to do it, putting some of the dark, almost orange, batter on the chips. People then started asking for them and they became quite popular and that's lasted to this day. So people are very proud of them and the black country is known for them. So when you see orange chips elsewhere, like Devon, it's usually someone from here has done it. What makes ours unique is that we use beef dripping and we've always had the best potatoes and use bigger chips than other shops and come out really orange. So as long as you use the right ingredients and have the right products, they come out really nicely. So how, when and where did this quintessentially British
4: dish come about? The potato is thought to have been brought to England from the New World in the 17th century by Sir Walter Raleigh, although it is believed that the French invented the fried potato chip. Both Lancashire and London stake a claim to being the first to invent this famous meal. Chips were a cheap staple food of the industrial north, whilst fried fish was introduced in London's East End. In 1839, Charles Dickens referred to a fried fish warehouse in his novel Oliver The populace soon decided that putting fried fish and chips together was a very tasty combination and so was born our national dish of fish and chips. The first fish and chip shop in the north of England is thought to have opened in Mossley near Oldham, Lancashire around 1863. Mr Lees sold fish and chips from a wooden hut in the market and later he transferred the business to a permanent shop across the road which had the following inscription in the window. This is the first fish and chip shop in the world. However, in London it is said that Joseph Malin, a Jewish immigrant, opened a fish and chip shop in Cleveland Way within the sound of Bow Bells in the 1860s. Fish and chip shops were originally small family businesses, often run from the front room of the house, and were commonplace by the late 19th century. Through the latter part of the 19th century and well into the 20th century, the fish and chip trade expanded greatly to satisfy the needs of the growing industrial population of Great Britain. In fact, you might say that the Industrial Revolution was fueled partly by fish and chips. The development of the steam-powered trawler brought fish from all over the North Atlantic, Iceland and Greenland, and the steam railways allowed easy and fast distribution of the fish around the country. Fish and chips became so essential to the diet of the ordinary man and woman that one shop in Bradford had to employ a doorman to control the queue at busy times during 1931. The Territorial Army prepared for battle on fish and chips provided in special catering tents erected at training camps in the 1930s. The fish and chip shop was invaluable in supplementing the family's weekly diet in the Second World War as fish and chips were among the few foods not to be rationed. Queues were often hours long, when the word went around that the chip shop had fish. On one occasion at Brian's fish and chip shop in Leeds, where fish was scarce, homemade fish cakes were sold, along with a confusing and slightly worrying warning, Patrons, we do not recommend the use of vinegar with these fish cakes. So are fish and chips any good for us nutritionally? Fish and chips are a valuable source of protein, fibre, iron and vitamins providing a third of the recommended daily allowance of vitamins for men and nearly half for women. The famous English nutritional scientist Magnus Pike cited it as an example of a traditional dish once jeered at by food snobs and even censored by health food devotees but now fully appreciated as a nutritious combination. In 1999, the British consumed nearly 300 million servings of fish and chips that equates to six servings for every man, woman and child in the country. Often thought of as convenient as well as affordable, at the turn of the millennium the average cost of fish and chips was £2.43. Cheap as chips. Sadly those days are no longer as the price for our favourite Friday night takeaway continues to rocket.
2: Fish and chip shops across the region have spoken of being the worst hit industry as the average price of the staple dish hikes to £9. A box containing 30 to 40 fish used to cost £80 a few years ago, said Andy Singh, the owner of Penchippy. Now it costs £250. Same with the oil, he added. I used to be able to get a block of vegetable oil, 125 kilograms, for £8. Now it's £27. The price of a large fish and chips has shot up by almost a fifth according to the Office for National Statistics. ONS, which launched a comparison tool to show how much everyday items have increased during the cost-of-living crisis. The data showed a surge in takeaway food and dining, with the cost of an average takeaway fish and chips jumping by 19% to £9. A number of chip shop owners said the same reason for their pricey fish – Brexit. They also agreed that footfall has dropped significantly. Mr Singh, who sells fish and chips for £9, said he is lucky to have regulars. We all had Brexit. That was a big no-no, he said. The price of fish went up for the first time in 20 years. We are lucky to have our regulars who come in often, but we have still had to make cuts. Gas and electricity bills are extortionate. The overheads have made owning the chippy not worth it anymore. We are definitely not getting the same footfall as we used to. It's not just us, everyone is in the same boat. We have been thrown into the deep end and if you can tread water you'll survive, if you can't, you'll drown. Price of potatoes has also increased significantly. Andy remembers when a 25 kilogram bag cost £3.50 a few years ago and now sets him back nearly £14. At the Island House, an upmarket takeaway and restaurant with outlets in Wolverhampton, Titson and Birmingham, the dish costs £9.95, which staff member Telisha Wilson says reflects the quality of the product. The fish market is much more expensive now, but still it's a high price for high quality, she said. We can't buy good quality expensive fish and sell it for £4 because you won't make a profit that way. Chris Minus, owner of Broadway Chippy in Warsaw, also has to charge £10.15 to be able to make a profit. We only buy high quality fish, but the price has increased massively since Brexit because of the import fees. We've really dropped in the number of customers we're getting. People can't afford it anymore. If it keeps going like this, having a fish and chip dinner will become a novelty, something people will do once a month as opposed to your Friday fish and chips.
0: Up now, it's Trivia Time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature.
9: Hello again, everyone. Here we are in flaming June, or so the weather law says. Now let's hope it's right this year, and we can all get a good dose of vitamin D in the sunshine. It got me thinking about summer pastimes and occasions, and eating outdoors, of course. So now then, did you know that? (whistles) National Barbecue Week, which was last week in the UK, and it's estimated that 12 million Barbies were held over Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee celebrations last year. With luck and a good summer, we could be set for a heat wave, and that barbecue occasions could hit the 170 million plus mark this year. The word barbecue comes from the Taino tribe's word for grilling on wood. Their word for grilling on a raised wooden grate is barbacoa. The word dates back to at least 1526 from a Spanish explorer's written account of the West Indies. Of course it will have existed long before that, however nobody wrote it down then and never use a barbecue indoors. This includes places like tents and caravans. When a barbecue is being used, it produces small amounts of poisonous carbon monoxide. When the gas is released outside, there's enough air to stop it being harmful to people. However, if a barbecue is used indoors, then this carbon monoxide gets trapped and can make people really ill and even lead to death. Even a cooling barbecue gives off plenty of poisonous carbon monoxide, so make sure you never put a barbecue indoors unless it's completely cold. And lockdown meant more people bought a barbecue last year. As a result of the lockdown, having a barbecue became UK's number one summer home at leisure activity, with three out of four households now owning some type of barbecue grill. That makes it even more popular than getting out the paddling pool. And a barbecue can reach temperatures of 260 degrees. This makes them very hot and potentially dangerous. Health and Safety says that you should always stay at least two meters away from a barbecue, though how an earthquake can turn a sausage or flip a burger from six feet away sounds difficult to me. The first modern barbecue was invented in 1952. George Stephen created the first modern barbecue grill in 1952 because he was a welder at Weber Brothers metal Works in Illinois in America. He cut a metal boy in half to make a grill that was dome-shaped and added three steel legs onto the dome, and then use the top half of the buoy as a lid to the grill. Well, what a score to this week's offer is eh? It made me feel quite peckish. I have to say, that I do like barbecue food as long as somebody else is cooking it, because personally, I could never see the appeal of standing by a brazier of red hot coals on a hot day. In road up, I'm off, and until I get invited to a cook-up, I'll stick my kettle on, and dig out my bickies, and enjoy a nice cupper. Till next week, then, I'll say bye for now. to bit. Ta-ra.
0: Up now, we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us as always, by Mina.
6: The weather for this week ahead still remains dry and warm, with plenty of sunny intervals. Temperatures are forecast to stay in the 20s with highs of around 24 degrees in places. With prolonged spells of sunshine, UV levels are expected to stay high. So, again, do remember to protect yourself and your loved ones with plenty of sun cream or sunblock if you are out and about in the sun for a lengthy time. The sunrise and sunset times are 4.45am for the sunrise and 935 for the sunset. For Friday 9th of June, it is forecast to be dry with sunny spells. With a gentle breeze, temperatures are expected to be lovely at 22 degrees. The sunshine and clear skies look set to stick with us as we head into the weekend, with Saturday and Sunday both forecast to be full of sunny intervals, with little cloud whatsoever. Temperatures should remain very pleasant and peak at around 24 degrees. On to next week and the dry weather will continue to dominate. It is forecast for a settled spell of warm weather to remain in the region for Monday 12th of June and continue right through to Thursday 15th of June. With just a gentle breeze expected, temperatures should continue to be around 22 degrees with a high of even 24 degrees in places. There is a small risk of an odd light rain shower as we proceed through the week, but all in all, it looks like we are forecast to have another wonderful week ahead. So, that's your weather for this week. As always,
0: enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Up now, it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. Arsenal
4: were top and Wolves were bottom when the Premier League paused for the World Cup. Last autumn, the Premier League was bracing itself for a season like no other, with a World Cup shoehorned into the middle of a packed club schedule. When the top flight paused for the World Cup, Wolves were rock bottom and four points adrift from safety. It looked bleak, very bleak for the black country outfit. With the Premier League season now over, we know exactly how every club was affected. The answer? Some more so than others. Lopetegui's mid-season pre-season with Wolves. Timing was everything for Wolves, even if it was only by accident. Winning just two of their first 15 games under Bruno Lage and then interim boss Steve Davis. Wolves were deservedly placed at the bottom of the pile. Former Spain and Real Madrid manager Gulen Lopetegui was in the stands to watch their 2-0 defeat by Arsenal immediately before the break and his taking over as boss the following day proved decisive. Rather than having to find a short-term fix, the six-week stoppage allowed him to install his ideas with the players and work on a plan for January recruitment, explained BBC WM's Wolves reporter Mike Taylor. Coaches taking over mid-season don't usually get the chance for an immediate pre-season-style reset. The evidence shows that it ironed out the bugs in the defensive programming. Wolves won seven home games after the World Cup all with clean sheets, and the signings of Craig Dawson and Mario Lemina in January were essential to that improved organisation. However, it's worth remembering Wolves had approached Lopetegui as soon as he had been fired by Sabia, the same week as Bruno Large was sacked. At that time, Lopetegui was caring for his ailing father and demurred. A month later, with Wolves seemingly drifting, Lopetegui felt the time was right, and so it proved. Wolves' points per game average rocketed from 0.67 to 1.35 for the remainder of the season, the biggest improvement of any side in the league post-World Cup. Talking of hard-fought battles, with Ron Goulet resigning as Albion chief executive, just who is left to fight for Albion now? It will take some time to digest the bombshell. Ron's departure 15 months into the role does not just ring alarm bells, but it removes what feels like the final layer of security during the biggest period of uncertainty and upheaval in the history of West Bromwich Albion. The bottom line and biggest question when the Scot departs the training ground in Warsaw for the final time on Wednesday, June 14th is who is going to fight for Albion, the football club and their fans now? This latest development, albeit one Gourlay triggered more than two months ago with his notice, could very well be a devastating one for Albion. There's no sugarcoating it. Gourlay, 60, had his critics, and that was fair enough. Some calls, mostly centred around Steve Bruce's hiring and delayed firing, were miscalculated. To counter that, on the football side, he recruited the club's best asset, Carlos Corberan and added security with a new deal amid Leeds' interest. Where his exit leaves Corberan amid more attention from the Whites, who still like the Spaniard, is anyone's guess. Pair had a very strong working relationship, but more important than any of that is that at ground level, at both the Hawthorns and in the training complex, Gourlay was working for the club and its fans. Amid all the desperate helplessness and uncertainty born out of Guachuan Lai's botched ownership, Gaule was at least there to try to do the right thing by the club. He regularly chased up the missing £5 million wisdom smart loan, regularly gave assurances that he himself had from his bosses, it would be repaid. Hope is almost totally extinguished there now. His level of influence can be questioned and was probably limited for big decisions but he was there fighting for the fans. He vowed in January, if more money went out of this club, you'd know because I won't be here. Gourlay created a transparency with fans. He attended Albion assembly meetings, met with Action for Albion and had a strong relationship with shareholders for Albion. He met with local press. That stuff isn't a given. That might not be the same approach by his replacement, whoever that may be. Yes, the club have had some time now to sound out a replacement, but who on earth is going to want to take on this messy role? A thankless task is an understatement. At least Gourlay was there to give an answer to fan groups, minority shareholders, media, fellow employees. He was right. Albion was a better place for at least someone willing to do the right thing. Without him, who is there to fight the
0: wrongs for the club's precious future? Have you done any good at the quiz this week? Well, now's the time to find out, as we have the quiz answers.
6: Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. How many barbecues were thought to have been held during the Platinum Jubilee? And the answer, 12 million. Question 2. The word barbecue is attributed to which Caribbean tribe? And the answer here is the Taino tribe. Question 3. What poisonous gas given off by barbecues makes them harmful and dangerous to use indoors? And the answer is carbon monoxide. Question 4. Which garden activity has the barbecue elbowed out of top spot? And the answer, the paddling pool. Question 5. What temperature can a barbecue reach? And the answer here is 260 degrees centigrade. And finally, question six. In what year was the first modern barbecue invented? And the answer here is 1952. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you once again. Bye for now.
0: Thank you very much for that, Mina. Up now, we have an informative piece all about cataracts. For further details on any of the items and practical information in this bulletin, you can also contact Beacon's team of sight loss advisors on 01902 880 111 and that number again 01902 880
10: 111. TNF soundings. Features from across the UK.
8: This is Colin with an article written by Fiona for Cataract Awareness Month in June. From ancient times to Ronald McDonald, the thought and ingenuity applied to the treatment of cataracts has been going on for thousands of years. In a bid to raise awareness of one of the leading causes of treatable vision loss in the UK, and indeed globally, June has been declared Cataract Awareness Month. This annual campaign is backed by sight loss charities, researchers, patients and healthcare professionals, all with one aim in common, to help people living with cataracts find non-surgical treatments for the condition. Often affecting those aged over 65, cataracts can have a severe impact on eyesight, in turn drastically reducing mobility, independence and quality of life. On their website, Site Research UK explained that cataracts most often start to develop in a person's lens as they get older. These changes to the lens stop light from reaching the back of the eye. The lens is a translucent structure that sits just behind the pupil. That's the black circle in the centre of the eye through which light enters. The lens works with the cornea, the transparent part of the eye that covers the iris and the pupil. The light is focused by the cornea and the lens on the retina, which is a layer of light-sensitive cells at the back of the eye. The retina creates an electrical interpretation of the image that is transmitted to the brain, enabling us to see. As one result of an aging population, the number of cataract cases is expected to rise across the globe, and experts are now urging people to educate themselves about the condition and about the treatment options available to them. Sight Research UK say that currently the only treatment for cataracts is surgery to remove the cataract. This restores vision by allowing light to reach the back of the eye again. The operation is generally very safe, and takes little more than 15 minutes to complete. More research is needed to find non-surgical treatments for cataracts so it's worth looking at how early surgeons tackled this problem. The earliest known method of treating a cataract is couching, which dates back to the 5th century BC. In an article on their website, the National Library of Medicine in Maryland, USA, explained that using this technique, the cataract was not removed from the eye. Instead, a needle was used to dislodge the cataract which remained in the eye but was no longer blocking light, therefore producing instantaneous improvement in vision. However, the lack of antiseptic techniques and the rough nature of the procedure sometimes resulted in blindness. It is believed that couching is still practiced in some countries. The first complete cataract extraction was performed in 1747 in Paris by French surgeon Jacques Daville. His procedure was more effective than couching, with an overall success rate of 50%. This type of surgery was first practiced in the UK in Elizabethan times. Coming right up to date in the Tamil Nadu region of India, a network of hospitals has pulled out the stops to create the most efficient surgical cataract procedures in the world. With a highly efficient assembly line model inspired by McDonald's, the network of hospitals offering the Aravind Eye Care System performs around 500,000 surgeries a year, many of them for free. Surgeons perform up to 100 surgeries a day, with a complication rate of less than 2 per 10,000, compared, according to the hospital, with Britain or the United States, where the rate ranges from 4 to 8 per 10,000. The hospital in Tamil Nadu was set up by Dr. Govindapa Venkatasawamy, who was inspired by McDonald's ex-Chief Executive Officer Ray Kroc, and learned about the fast food chain's economies of scale during a visit to the Hamburger University in Chicago. "'If McDonald's can do it for hamburgers, why can't we do it for eye care?' he famously said. "'The model has been so successful it has been the subject of numerous studies,' including by Harvard Business School. Moorfields Eye Charity in the UK is one of many organizations investing in cataract treatment and research. To support the training of the next generation of surgeons in cataract operations, the charity purchased a new state-of-the-art surgical simulator for Moorfields Eye Hospital. They also supported a clinical trial exploring treatment options for cataracts this trial examined the effectiveness of laser-assisted surgery when compared to standard surgery. Is there anything we can do to prevent cataracts forming in our eyes? From advice about diet, supplements, smoking, the wearing of sunglasses and drinking alcohol, there is a lot of advice, but, to date, sadly still no cure for cataracts other than surgery. Isn't it good to know that all these researchers and people like Dr. Venka Tassawami are on our side?
10: TNF Soundings. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, Just say hello to, maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880111, email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening. And thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who, without their support, would be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. ta